I have seen like the whole gamut of just interesting things that I think a lot of funds wouldn't be able to touch. The most out there deal that I ever looked at was the seed round for a North Korean K-pop band. I've met the families ranging from like just legacy manufacturing, industrials, like supply chain businesses, all the way to like, like the Stroopwafel family. Hi everyone, I'm Taiki and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that uncovers the secret world of venture capital from the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups. If you don't know much about VC, you've come to the right place. It's time to get hype because the one and only Jane Chen has joined us on the show today. She's currently the principal at Blue Nine Capital where she invests in the best early stage startups in FinTech and B2B SaaS. Jane got her undergraduate degree from Harvard studying both economics and computer science Afterwards, she spent some time at PJT Partners, one of the top investment banks in the M&A group focused on fintech and consumer sectors. She also serves on the youth board of WPA, an organization that empowers women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. I hope that you are all as excited as I am for this episode. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you for that um, amazing introduction. I don't think I could have introduced myself better, actually. <laughs> Before we dive right into startups and venture capital, I wanted to acknowledge that on the day of this recording, it is Halloween. So I was thinking about dressing up for this recording, but I didn't have anything good in the closet. So in the spirit of Halloween and being spooky, one of the scariest things for me as a young VC is getting pitched by random people. And for some reason, Uber drivers just love to pitch me their ideas. So has that ever happened to you? You know, it's funny you say that actually. Um, I get that every single time I'm in SF and I tell people I'm a VC, immediate, it's like, here's my company. Not so much in New York. In New York, it's actually uh, when I tell funds that I'm a family office, the fund managers and GPs actually immediately start pitching me. Yeah, that's actually so interesting. Now that I think about it, every time that I've been pitched by an Uber driver, it has been on the West Coast. It's happened three times in San Francisco and then like twice in LA, um, but actually not in New York, but because I feel like the Uber drivers don't talk to you. Yeah, yeah. New Yorkers are a little bit, you know, harder to approach as well. Right. Yeah. And that's actually a great segue because what also just happened pretty recently was New York Tech Week. So I'm not sure if you had went to any of the events, but I went to a few. Um, what did you think about that whole week? It, it was great. Um, it's always awesome to see the New York ecosystem kind of coming together and then attracting, you know, a lot of founders, operators, investors, um, enthusiasts from all over the place. I've actually now been to uh, all three of the tech weeks across New York, um, SF and LA. And it's great to see like the different ecosystems um, with each each having their own respective like um, groups and communities. But yeah, lots of great events. Uh, mostly went to support my friends who were hosting events uh, this time around, but it was awesome. Still recovering. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the tech week events are really geared towards VC funds and startup founders. Are you thinking about, you know, strategically going to certain events from the perspective of a family office? Is there a different set of events that you tend to enjoy going more to? 
Yeah, that's that's actually a really insightful question. Um, so for family offices, there were actually a lot of events specifically geared for like LPs and then ones that were for LPs and GPs. Um, and so I actually, for New York at least, ended up going to more of the family office focused ones. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. Are there a lot of family offices that are based in New York? Tons. There's it's it's super interesting to think about family offices just as a space um because the, a lot of their wealth comes from maybe like one area or one operating company but these guys are like expert operators in that one very niche space and there's a lot of like wealth that has been created from all different types of innovations that have like now created general generational wealth um for example like i know the family that um innovated you know Several centuries ago, when you walk into a bank, the pen is connected to the like counter with this chain of ball. They have like the IP on that ball chain, and it has created generational wealth. Wow! The more that I experience the world and talk to more people, I realize that there's so much money everywhere. You know, people who go through college, everyone's very interested in like investment banking, consulting, software engineering all these like high paying glamorous jobs. And of course they do pay a lot, but sometimes we forget that there's so much money everywhere in the world that like you could be running an air conditioning company and be like a multi-millionaire, almost billionaire. There's there's money all over besides these really like high finance or like big tech industries. Um, and we'll actually get to that because uh, I wanted to start off by knowing a little bit or hearing a little bit more about your origin stories from from the beginning how did you get to work in dc and family offices i guess we should start off with your time at harvard yeah um so i was one of those psychos going into college being like yeah i want to do banking you know after i graduate honestly looking back not really knowing what banking was i think in my mind it was a very different thing than what it actually was you know for better or for worse but was pretty focused on actually going into banking um didn't explore that many alternatives which i probably should have um but you know did my junior year internship um, with PJT, joined full-time, and then spent a few years um, in the M&A group uh, within banking. But interestingly about PJT, it was the first year that it was officially its own standalone entity after it spin out Blackstone and the merger with kind of Morgan Stanley's uh, TMT practice. And the lull there to me was, oh, we're like a startup bank. So you'll have a lot more like autonomy and like say over, you know, kind of the culture or help define the culture. And I was like, wow, that's great. This is such so like forward thinking um, for an investment bank. And I think that was true to some degree. Um, definitely a lot more like freedom and less of like the traditional, you know, banking, um, you know, like FaceTime culture. We didn't have as much of that. I would say, um, but really like good experience uh, overall, like really good training grounds. And actually, I have to I do have to thank my banking experience for my introduction to venture because we had like some unique opportunities to actually work on equity fundraises as a bank for like early stage startups. So I worked on a few like decks that were like series seed or series A companies looking to fundraise. Um, in hindsight, that's probably a negative signal if an early stage uh, startup needs to um, retain a banker to help. 
but you know, great experience for me. So that's actually, that was my first foray into venture. Um, didn't have too much exposure to that uh, in undergrad, actually. Mm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people that I talk to that are aspiring to work in venture capital, they very much think of, you know, two years in investment banking as a prerequisite. I I personally am not doing banking. I don't know if I could handle it. But at your time at PJT, you were saying that you were working on sort of these like Series C, later stage startup deals. Um, so is that what ultimately attracted you to make the jump from IB to venture capital? Or was it something different? Yeah, it was part that and then um, uh, kind of by process of elimination, I was like, well, I don't really know if I want to go into the private equity world, don't know if I want to go into the hedge fund world, but I do like investing and kind of looking at businesses um, with like a financial lens. Um, and venture kind of was that perfect in between where it was more thinking about like growth trajectories, like what could the market look like? What could the future look like? Less about financial engineering, um, which is what in my kind of sense, like private equity is more about. Um, you're not really thinking like very opportunistically, like, okay, this is what the world is going to look like, you know, in five years. Uh, you have a business that's generating cash already. And so you kind of underwrite to the existing business. Um, and yeah, I was just really attracted to kind of venture. And honestly, it's pretty inspiring to speak with founders who are willing to just go out there, risk it all for something that they really believe in. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what attracted me to venture as well is I love working with really passionate people and founders are like the most passionate people you'll ever get in like in like the, a career, right? Founders love what they do and it's literally their life. And so you'll get some special perspectives there. I was I was mentioning earlier how it's almost like a prerequisite to do IB to break into buy side roles like venture capital, like hedge funds, like PE. Have you found that the skills that you had learned from PJT to be actually helpful for your time with Blue Nine Capital? Or is it kind of like two different worlds? Because from my understanding, a lot of early stage investing is investing in people and not necessarily like financial metrics because they're just not enough of them yet. There's not enough metrics to like make a decision yet. Yeah, you, you, you nailed it. Um, early stage investing is really more about like picking the team and investing and underwriting people, less so metrics. But I think it was definitely helpful to just have that training of understanding like what do metrics mean, right? Because there are certain pieces that are always going to be, you know, important from prior experience that are transferable, whether you did banking or you went from operating or just something completely um, unrelated. And for me, the two pieces that I think were most important for my time at PJT were was really understand, okay, what do metrics mean in like a more holistic sense? Like, is this early stage company like aligned in how they're thinking about growth? Like, are their revenue projections like realistic? I don't particularly care about the specific number that they're giving me, but it's helpful as like a sense check of, okay, does this under does this founder understand like what their cost structure could look like right now at scale, you know? Do they have a good grasp of, um, you know, does this revenue growth even make sense from their customers that they, they could acquire, et cetera. And the other really important thing, honestly, is just organization and uh, timeliness of responses to emails, um, which, you know, was kind of uh, beaten into you in uh, banking where you always 
look on your phone and just make sure you're responding to like partners and, you know, um, all these like requests and in venture, I still kind of hold that same mentality of, okay, got to make sure I'm being very, very responsive. And I don't think that's like the status quo in venture. Um, and so I've actually gotten pretty good feedback that, oh, wow, like you respond so quickly. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's a good thing. People, you know, want answers. Um, and you know, time is important. So on my second episode, I had a um, GP of a newer fund based in Boston, and we were talking about reputation and building rapport with founders and other investors and LPs. And they were saying that the main thing that you know they had like control over was response time, and that goes a really, really long way. And so now I aspire to be the person that at least responds to emails within a day or two. Um, and it's understated how important that is because it, it builds rapport, it builds reputation, and that's everything in this game of early stage investing. 100%. So I'd like to switch gears here. I feel like I've been jumping around quite a lot, but I want to get to the meat and potatoes of this whole conversation here, which is Blue Line Capital and family office and, and sort of like the ecosystem around family offices, what their objectives are, things like that. So to start off, for those who don't know, I would like you to give like a quick background on Blue Nine Capital and maybe what a family office is. Yeah. Um, so family office, the, the saying in this ecosystem is that if you've met one family, you've met one family. There's no such thing as like a typical, typical family office. Cause if you think about it, it's really like each one is its own individual partnership between like the family members and different people have different preferences for what they like to invest in, what their risk appetite is, um, what their asset allocation is. Um, so every family truly is pretty different. Um, I honestly haven't even met one that was like identical to ours um, after being in this space for three years. Um, but for Blue Nine specifically, um, our background comes from textile manufacturing. Um, the family was one of the first ones to pioneer offshore way back in the day, uh, no longer in the business um, and have been doing private equity investing for about, you know, 30 years and then most recently venture for almost a decade, uh, the most recent decade. And I would say for us, where we differ from a lot of other families is that venture is one of our only actively managed asset classes. And what I mean by that is we have a team dedicated to actually investing in venture um, and the other asset classes that we um, own, like across real estate, credit, you know, private equity, um, publics is more of a passive investment for us. Mm, okay. I gotcha. So just to take a step back here, the the main concept of the family office is that there's a a family that has accumulated a lot of wealth through their business endeavors previously, and they are looking for a team of people to manage that wealth. Typically, yeah. Or they might want to do it themselves. Okay, gotcha. And then so, and you are on the team that manages the wealth that's allocated towards venture investing? Correct. But for us, our team only, there's only one team um, and we only actively manage our venture investments. Where typically you'll see the structure is you'll have a team that looks across um, uh, all different asset classes um, 
And especially you almost never see a family office that only does active venture investments because venture is a very, very risky strategy compared to, you know, everything else that they could be uh, investing in. Um, So we're, you know, very risk on in that regard. And so going back into, we talked a little bit about your career path. When you were looking to recruit for other kinds of VC roles, were you ever between looking for VC, working at a VC firm or a fund versus a family office? Yeah, definitely explored both options. And for me, I kind of had two criteria um, going into this. One was I didn't want a large organization with a lot of hierarchy. Um, I think I had, um, you know, enough of that in the banking world where I was like, okay, time for some autonomy um, in in my next role. And then my second criteria was I didn't want to necessarily fundraise. Um, and family offices were kind of that perfect, like sweet spot of, okay, they already have capital, you know, internal capital, proprietary capital. So that fundraise was never, you know, in, in the talks. And then smaller kind of more lean organization as well gotcha yeah totally what does your day-to-day look like on the investment team at blue nine capital um so outwardly facing we're actually pretty similar to just a standard vc fund you probably wouldn't um immediately recognize the difference just by kind of talking to us because we have um you know the same like day-to-day structure since we only do venture it's either like heavy, more heavy on the sourcing, heavy on like the diligence or kind of portfolio management or just meeting, you know, other ecosystem partners like operators. Um, it's, it's usually just a split um, between these three kind of um, areas. And then obviously uh, kind of given our private equity DNA, I would say we probably lean a little bit heavier on the diligence side than most of the other early stage funds. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to shake that up. 40 years of private equity DNA. So I think that's where I would say, you know, I spend a disproportionate amount of my time on, but yeah, we're pretty similar to honestly, the kind of standard VC firm just at first glance. Gotcha. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about some of the more like fun stories that you've had working in the family office space and the venture space. And I'd love to share some of those stories now, like when you Think about the past three years working as, you know, an investor. What are some of the highlights that you have? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's kind of two-pronged, both like internally and externally. And what I mean by that is like, so from an internal perspective, um, because it's all our own proprietary capital, we don't really have a mandate or LPs that we need to report to. So that gives us a lot more flexibility in our mandates and what we're allowed to invest in per se. So from like a VC side, I have seen like the whole gamut of just interesting things that I think a lot of funds wouldn't be able to touch. Um, The most out there deal that I ever looked at was um, the seed round for a North Korean K-pop band. Um, We we didn't do it, needless to say, um, but we looked at it. And so that that was pretty cool. Um, And then just from like a broad uh, asset class kind of um, uh, ownership perspective on our private equity side, like we own just this very diverse portfolio of assets. Um, I think so, for example, we um, have ownership stakes in like a 20 billion or so RIA in Philly. We own one of the largest like or a pretty large events 
production um, company in New York where they put on like several exhibits um, throughout like the years. I think Van Gogh was one of the big ones. Um, they put on like the, they own the biggest Lego exhibition uh, in the US it's in Omaha, Nebraska. I think at one point we um, were uh, bidding for the rights to the Titanic, which may have ever. Um, so like these are things that you don't typically hear venture funds looking at um, because they're just do this one very specific thing, like early stage or growth stage or, you know, pre-IPO venture. Um, but for us, we look at all different flavors of um, investment opportunities. And then externally, I would say some of the really fun stories, honestly, just come from meeting like families um, where you don't think about pockets of wealth creation. Um, like I've met the families ranging from like just legacy manufacturing, industrials, like supply chain businesses, all the way to like, like the Stroopwafel family. Wow. Things that you don't really think about, right? That is so, so cool. And I don't even know where I want to take this conversation because there's so many different things that I feel like are super interesting. For starters, why is it that family offices can entertain these very unique investments while VC funds can't? Is it having to do with like the, the idea of VC funds have to report to LPs and the LPs wouldn't be happy with them investing in like the Titanic? Or what? why is it that family office investments can be more, you know, out there? No, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, I think that if you presented VCs with the opportunity to own the rights to the Titanic, they might be able to uh, sway their LPs to make an exception for them. Um, but broadly, you know, um, I think you've touched upon one angle where it's fit, funds do have LPs and LPs invest in a very specific mandate. Um, and also, if you think about just venture as an asset class, it's like, high risk, high returns, right? And so most funds have to underwrite to a fund returner opportunity um, for you know every single one of their deals to really be able to make that return profile work. But as a family office, most families, I would say, kind of look towards capital preservation as the first and foremost rule. Um, and also it's, you know, it's our own capital. We can do what we want with it. And oftentimes if it's something that's really interesting, but might not be the best, like, you know, 100x opportunity, we're still able to make some room um, in, our, in our allocation as well. Like, our, like a fun bucket, fun investment bucket. That's awesome. I, I had no clue about that. And that is a really compelling case <laughs> to working at a family office over a VC fund. I have to ask, so you mentioned um, like the North Korean K-pop group. What does the due diligence look like on a, on a deal like that? Because I feel like venture investment due diligence, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of the same from company to company, right? You like have to look at like the, the problem, like what they're trying to solve, mm -hmm. um, like the team. But for like a North Korean K-pop group, yeah, it's obviously going to be all about the market, but the team is like, uh, you have to like watch a bunch yeah. of people, you know, like, what does that so, look like? Yeah, you know, I wish I could give you a lot of detail on this one, but um, we unfortunately didn't go too deep in diligence, actually in fear of, you know, getting sanctioned or getting on some government list. And they're like, yeah, I don't know if we'll be able to engage very heavily into this one. Um, but there's there's a lot of other like more interesting or like very out of left field kind of early stage opportunities that we also get that 
may not be like a fun returner, but could return like a pretty comfortable 10x for us that we would, you know, look at. I mean, one of our early private, or I guess it was venture um, that we did in the late 90s, early 2000s was actually a um, business that licensed, I guess it was a toilet seat company at the end of the day, but they had a licensing agreement with a lot of like the children's like characters and cartoons, like, you know, like the Sanrio's, Batman's, whatever. But this company basically licensed those images and put them on toilet seats. Great business, great cash flowing business. Probably not something a venture fund would touch, but you know, we were able to do it and it was um, a good return for our portfolio. Wow, wait, so that that company had exited or it had been yeah. like, acquired? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. That's so, that is so, so interesting to me. It's like a whole new world. That seems so fun. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and um, a lot of investment freedom as well. So um, it's sometimes hard to stay focused, uh, to be completely honest, where, you know, if I get a real cool <laughs> opportunity, I'm like, oh, but this could be really cool. <laughs> so my biggest challenge sometimes is just staying a little bit more targeted in what I'm, you know, supposed to look at, but mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely gotcha. a lot of fun. You know, I'm I'm called to ask because I had worked for a a VC fund that was based in Miami and Spain, and our big value add to founders or to our investments was that we would we have like an in-house data team that will look through any startups' data and give them the metrics that they're looking for. Right? Like, let's say like they need to see what their retention rate is. They connect their data to our like our VC firm's platform and they'll get all those metrics back just like that. Right. So that got me thinking for a, a lot of VC funds and firms say that their value add for founders is, you know, some sort of like either network or direct operational advice. Like they have, they have experience in operations and they can provide good advice. But for family offices, do those values that, that you can provide founders change? Are they are they different? Yeah, I would say it's um, a little bit different, a little bit the same. So we definitely offer our network, but our flavor of network um, comes partially from our family office network. And so that's actually helpful from a strategic perspective because we know a lot of families who made their wealth in one very specific area that they just know right. really, really well, right? And when we can introduce those families to the respective and relevant companies that are trying to build in those spaces, like that's that's immense value to the startups themselves. Um, so we bring more of a family office network. Um, with which comes with operational expertise. The other big difference I would say is from a capital perspective, um, family office tend to be more patient capital, meaning that I don't necessarily need to see like the fund return within like seven to 10 years, right? Versus a VC fund, it's like, that's kind of your life cycle. And that's when LPs are expecting to get um, returns on their investment versus for us, it's like, okay, you know, we could theoretically hold our investments for 20 years if that's that was the best scenario for us as well as the company. Um, and so there's a lot more flexibility um, given to the founders if they take family office capital versus venture dollars. Oh, totally. I didn't even think about that. That totally makes so much sense. Uh, from my understanding, family offices are a little bit more like low key, right? And they're like marketing or like they're 
like their websites are not as going to be like as, as flashy and glamorous. Is, is there some point here that you would want to talk about? So on the reputation side, what I would say is that, um, yes, families definitely like to be a little bit more low key because it's like um, a security uh, question a lot of the times and safety question because it's like not just the person who's investing, but it's them and all their family members and they may not necessarily want that exposure. And so the type of founders that actually gravitate towards family offices tend, I would say, to be second time founders or repeat founders who from their first, you know, first company, they landed like the VC investors, kind of the name brand, tier one funds, tier two, whatever. Um, And then they understand what it means to actually take venture dollars. And so for, you know, company two or three, they're like, okay, great. We know we have sort of like the motions and we would prefer like more patient capital. Um, So that's what I would say for the reputation question. The last thing I guess I would just say from a kind of obviously very high level, but culture within family offices could oftentimes be more important than culture at a VC firm um, because you are working like very, very closely with the family. And if you think about it, like I am deploying the family's capital and I feel like a very strong fiduciary duty to the family since I respect them a lot. I think they're awesome people um, to make sure that, you know, every dollar I'm deploying is scrutinized, like, you know, like everything I'm thinking about from an investment perspective, it's like check the boxes, you know, I have to be very comfortable with it because if I, you know, make a bad investment, it's kind of like losing friends capital versus on the venture side it's you're a little bit removed because it's a pool of capital um and you're not directly like handling one person's um dollars and so that that's kind of the additional like nuance with families is cultural fit is pretty important um and also to understand like does this family what's their appetite for like investing right they might say they want to do venture but it's, it's actually really risky for them. And so you might not actually be able to um, deploy dollars into strategies versus a fund. You know what kind of like their mandate, you know what they're looking for um, in investment opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, we had touched upon this before, but are there different family members that have different risk profiles that you have to manage like independently, or is it more like one big block of capital that they all agree on? This is how we should spend it. Yeah, every every family is different. Um, so for us, it's really I think just we are mostly managing one of the family members' capital, um, but there could be some pooled capital from other family members into this one pool. Um, versus like, you know, one of my friend's family offices are a newer family and they're still figuring out, um, their setup and kind of, uh, what this structure even an entity looks like. So what they do is actually on a deal by deal basis, they have to get buy-in from each of the families, um, individually. And oh. that's just how they, they structure it, right? Like maybe the sister has less appetite for this opportunity than the brother, but, and so they only get like two people to pull money into an investment. And, but on aggregate, it still comes from one uh, family per se, but each of the um, shareholders of the family could have a different, you know, pool of capital that they're working with. Gotcha. 
Oh, I so, love that. It's, it's very complex. <laughs> yeah, it gets really fun when you um, start working with um, multi-generational families with a lot of family members, um, because then <laughs> a lot of like contention around like trust ownership and who gets what um, mm-hmm. becomes more of like a family feud scenario. But luckily, <laughs> that's not that's not Blue Nine. Right. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm sure there's also a lot of underground drama, maybe. I mean, a lot of families go through when there's a lot of money, especially like even mine, right? Or my ancestors, there is a lot of drama whenever there's money involved. So maybe yeah. it makes sense that they give it to someone else to sort of manage and invest for them. But um, yeah, oh, that's so interesting. I These are all things that I, I'd wish like someone had told me about. I feel like yeah. I, I only really understood VC firms and funds. But this sounds like a lot more interesting just because there's a lot more moving pieces and a lot more to think about, like more intellectually stimulating. Yeah, a lot more optionality. And uh, like, I guess as you're talking about this, something else kind of just popped in my head. Um, Based on like my interactions with families, I would say that people who work for the families tend to stay longer with those families than you would see um, kind of like a life cycle of someone with a fund so my partner has been with the family for like 30 years now um and that's i see that a lot with other cios of family offices it's like once you're there that's kind of like you are in that family or you move around within the family office ecosystem um you tend to stay in this space probably because it's like you know to your point it's a it's a lot of flexibility you can look at a lot of different you know opportunities um and it's like if you like the family that you're working with it's a a pretty great gig yeah that's such an interesting point i didn't even think about that right like that when you join the family office ecosystem people do tend to stay right and um i've heard i've heard that from like some other person but i i didn't really i didn't really believe it for some reason because in my mind it was like always vc firm vc firm vc firm because that's like all that was broadcasted to me right Oh, yeah, actually, I was like, you know, to your point of like just VC firms like throwing into the face, like I'm always like, I'm just curious, like family office has was never mentioned once to me in undergrad. Like it was always like consulting, banking, or, you know, flavor of the two venture, like a little bit more these days. But like, family, the word, the two words were never uttered to me on campus. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, you know, there's not much exposure um, kind of early on in people's careers to this to this space. And do you think is there is there a reason for that? Do you think like family offices are specifically not recruiting very vocally? Yeah, I think it's part that there's never been like a um, like a culture of recruiting per se, or at least definitely not really within undergrad, unless it's like a very established family office. Like, I mean, Iconic is technically or his technically a family office that then became an NF- MFO that is now a fund. But with like a few exceptions like that, I think most tend to just, you know, do their own thing. And it's a very uh, relationships-based um, ecosystem. That could be another reason where families like like even from an investment perspective if a family doesn't have their own investment team they'll come to us and be like hey how are you guys looking about about at this deal or how are you thinking about this space and they 
um, take our recommendations like very, very seriously. Um, and even for hiring, right? Um, if there's someone who comes like highly recommended from another trusted family office, they're probably going to go with that person as opposed to running an like a official or formal recruiting process. Mm. And is that how you landed the role at Blue Nine? So I honestly was very lucky. I think I randomly like saw um, saw the firm like online somewhere. But I happened to actually um, know the parent company that actually purchased the operating business of the family um, because I worked very briefly on a transaction for the parent company in banking. And so I knew their name from the tech stack. And I was like, wait, this is this the same family that sold their business 50 years ago? Did a little bit of digging. And I was like, it's the same family. And so that kind of gave me comfort around like legitimacy. Um, Cause that's another thing in the family office space, anyone can actually claim they're a family office these days. And so you never know if they're like an ins like institutional, if they're not really a family or if they're like posing as a family. And so knowing the originations or origins of the family's operating business, I was like, okay, I know that they're legitimate. I, um, understand like where they came from and so that was kind of a very coincidental happen chance um for me to to meet like blue nine in the family office capacity oh love it i love how investing is such it's just such a small world but really quickly when you first joined blue nine capital how was the vc learning curve for you yeah it was um kind of, it kind of felt like from starting from scratch in a way, um, I had very few connections to venture funds, to founders and to operators um, in this ecosystem. And so spent like my first year really just trying to get to know as many people as I possibly could across funds, operators, founders, um, you name it, and slowly built out my connections that way. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'd like to segue to the ending. Unfortunately, it's been so fun, but we do have to wrap things up. I have the ceremonial final ask, which is three questions. Um, are you ready for those? Yes. Okay. So in the spirit of being new to venture capital, if you were to start your career from scratch, kind of like what you're mentioning before, but with no connections, but the same knowledge that you have now, what would you do to get back to where you are? Yeah, I would say that I would probably speak to as many people in the space, whether directly in the space or tangentially re relevant to the space as possible, just as many people as possible to do a lot of data gathering, um, mm -hmm. just to understand like what it actually means to you know invest in venture and like what do people like to look for um, in the space. And then like from a connections point, it's also a great way to just use those, um, you know, uh, inform informational conversations as like the bridge to building that into a long-term relationship. And I don't think I kept up um, with a lot of my, um, my early informational conversations and connections yeah. enough. Yeah, well said. Uh, one of my key learnings in VC so far is that knowledge and connections is power. Just wanted to echo what you said. Totally agree. 
the next question is to shout out an investor or a VC that you think has been absolutely killing the game right now, or someone who has unique takes that you thought were very interesting, maybe wrote a fantastic article, or maybe even personally helped you grow. Yeah, um, for me, it's like more of a type of investor. And the ones that I respect the most are the ones that founders tell me they love. Um, I always take notes of those mm. investors because, you know, in the early stage game, it's about investing in entrepreneurs and the ones, the signals that they give me, I take very strongly. And two that I've heard a lot are, you know, Neil um, from TTV and then uh, also hear Tom from Dash Fund a lot too. Wow. Great. Amazing. Not necessarily content, but, but, but just really like supporters of entrepreneurs yeah they really take care of their founders and that's super important and from what i hear pretty rare so good to hear yeah um and the last question is to shout out a startup that you believe can change the world yeah so i believe this and i think apple is going to become one of the largest uh, fintech companies in the next um, mm. few decades um, and really just change how consumers interact with payments, with mobile wallets. I mean, they have the distribution already. Um, they mm -hmm. have like a really strong banking partnership. And I think they just have a massive opportunity to capture a huge share of payment flows. I mean, Apple Pay, That's if that's the option to me right now for any sort of commerce, I'm probably going to use that. And it's interesting yeah. to just see that kind of um, overnight shift almost of consumer behavior. Yeah, thousand percent. I love that take. Big fan of that. I'm I'm with you here, Jane. Um, and what a great way to end the show as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the New Adventure podcast. Jane, I'm really looking forward to seeing all the progress you make and let's keep in touch. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun.